Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you are listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel in the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you'd love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btopher at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guest is Christian Pareno to talk about his book, Boredom, Architecture, and Spatial Experience. Christian is an assistant professor of history and theory of architecture at Universidad San Francisco de Quito, Ecuador. I'm sure I butchered that. Christian, thank you very much for being here and talking with me today. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian, for having me. It's a good opportunity uh, to talk about my work. Absolutely. So before we begin, can you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? Certainly. I was born and raised in Quito. It is where I did my degree in architecture at Universidad San Francisco de Quito, where I now teach history and theory of architecture as an assistant professor. After graduating in 2001, I worked as an architectural designer for about four years. Then I decided to embark upon a master's course and I decided to do it on history and theory. I thought that was what I needed to become a better, more successful architect. And mainly because while I was a student, despite my best efforts, I would always fall asleep in history class. (laughs) Um, In 2005, I enrolled at the Histories and Theories program, now called History and Critical Thinking, at the Architectural Association. And so I moved to London. As a consequence of those studies and also uh, of the experience of the city, architecture changed for me. It became an object of knowledge rather than an object to be designed. I realized I had many, by then still sort of formless, inchoate, questions about what is architecture, what are its origins and sequels, and how can the built environment be understood and studied. So thank you, or thanks to professors such as Marina Latouri and Mark Cousins, I was introduced to architecture as philosophy, as a way of thinking. After I completed the course, although still with many conflicting and confusing ideas, I landed a job as an architectural designer in London, 
in the middle of Covent Garden uh, at a large scale firm. There, in addition to my work as an architect, I also did research for the same company, looking at sites in central London with the potential of, with the potential of being redeveloped. Those were buildings and plots that were no longer considered of attention in the market, that were deemed boring by real estate offices. In parallel, I began to contribute to Glass Magazine, a glossy publication dedicated to fashion and lifestyle, which included a section called Space. As an editor and writer, I had to produce at least four interviews per year with different uh, and, and, and well-known architects. So, for instance, I had the opportunity to meet figures such as Ram Kulhas, Eva Yuregna, Eric Owen Moss. But setting aside the content of those very uh, fruitful and interesting conversations, the fact that those architects were dedicating time to a non-specialized magazine made me realize the importance of architecture as a cultural component, as an entity or, or as an object of public desire that influences our everyday life through the projection of aspirations of how we want to live. With all these ideas in mind, and due to the economic crisis of 2008, which forced many of us to rethink our architectural careers, in 2010, I left practice and returned to school. As a PhD student, investigating the relationship between boredom and architecture. Very interesting. And so that leads me to my first question, actually. Uh, you know, boredom is something I think all of us are very familiar with. And so you hinted at it, I think, slightly in your introduction. But what led you to write a book about something we all deal with boredom and how it relates to architecture? Well, it was precisely during those years working in London from 2006 to 2010, that I started to pay attention to this sort of condition, to this notion of boredom. So um, as an anecdote, I remember the day in which uh, the idea came to my mind. One day I was on my way out to lunch and I ran into my supervisor. So. My supervisor, he explained uh, that this responsibility entailed the production of the details of the facade of a large project in the Middle East for a period of a year. So my excitement uh, disappeared when I imagined myself working in a non-creative task, dedicating time and thought to what I considered at that moment a very boring activity. I suspect that my disappointment became very evident because my supervisor uh, never mentioned that conversation again. So that afternoon, instead of having lunch, I drifted towards the library of the Architectural Association. And while perusing the books aimlessly, 
I found a copy of A Philosophy of Boredom by Lars Venson, a Norwegian philosopher. So it was a moment of enlightenment because I immediately recognized the sentiment. I was bored with my job. I was bored with the version of architecture that I had been working in that office. I was bored with the understanding of architecture as the construction of novelty for commercialization. So by the state of the book that I found at the Architectural Associations and, and the many notes in its pages, it was obvious that it had been read many times. So I perused those annotated pages to see where the interest of the readers lied. I realized that the most highlighted passages were those related to leisure and free time which is a topic related to certain types of buildings, such as cinemas, recreation centers, and stadia. But those parts in the book where boredom was explored as a philosophical concept with a particular history seemed to pass unnoticed. So as soon as I could, I um, got uh, a copy of the book and started to familiarize myself with the theories of boredom investigated by Svensson in his book. And in particular, the philosophical account of boredom by Martin Heidegger caught my attention. To Heidegger, we are always in a mood, in a particular state of mind. Like in a pendulum, we pass from one mood to another from joy to anxiety, from anxiety to boredom, and from boredom back to joy. Interesting. Unlike sentiments, such as anger or guilt, moods are long-lasting, less likely to be triggered by isolated events. It can be said that moods are the space in which we move, as if we would be immersed in a dense, deep atmosphere, which is individual but also shared, it is communal. Importantly, these emotional states are historically specific, not random. And according to Heidegger and to other philosophers, including Soren Kierkegaard and Walter Benjamin, boredom is one of the prevailing moods of the modern era. To be modern is to be bored. To be bored is a sign of our modernity. So several questions arose. Could architecture be shaped not only by intellect, creative talent and technological development, but also by the mood of those who produce it? And if boredom is a mood of modernity, then how could its presence be detected in the ideation, design and experience of the built environment? Very, very interesting. And so that kind of leads me right to uh, the organization of the book. Uh, again, it's uh, it's hard to talk about it all at once, I'm aware. But you do break it down into these three conceptual frameworks, the uh, differential distances, circular trajectories, and extended thresholds. And I understand that's a lot to discuss all at once, but I was wondering if you could maybe walk us through kind of an explanation of each one quickly, and then we could talk about each in, in further detail. Perfect. Uh, but perhaps before getting into that, 
I would like to do a brief clarification, uh, which is sure that in the book, boredom is posed as a relationship. So boredom does not belong to any architecture. I think it can emerge in the domestic, minimal and modest, but also in the monumental, convoluted and grandiose. It is a condition that, is, that belongs to the exterior world, but also to inner inhabitation. It connects, merges and compresses many dimensions. It is a question that moves from the concern of how individuals stand in the world to how the world stands in relation to individuals. So the three sections more or less follow a very loose uh, chronological organization. The first section, differential distances, explore the experiential aspects of boredom in its nascent phase as a qualifier of inhabitation during the consolidation of modernity in the 19th century. So the condition emerges as a discord between interiority, the space of ideas and sentiments, and exteriority, the space of the world and society. In 1843, Kierkegaard argued that what defines the modern experience is the awareness that interiority does not need to be communicated in exteriority. That is to say, we live in these parallel realms. Since self-reflectivity guides modernity, the individual can respond to outer demands while keeping inner circumstances private. So Kierkegaard identified two modes of living, the aesthetical and the ethical. And within this duality, Boredom dwells in the aesthetical as a threat to enjoyment and beauty. To Kierkegaard, it is demonic since, since it impedes closeness with the spiritual. So the condition constitutes the root of all evil, but according to Kierkegaard, with such power to set things in motion. Boredom is compared to a field lying fallow, in need of rest in order to be fertile again. So this section is mainly explored through novels by Catherine Gore and Charles Dickens, who are key protagonists of the popularization of the term boredom in English. The section also explores the elaborations on empathy by Henry Berthlin and Adolf Goller. And this section finalizes with a quite poignant observations on Coney Island by Maxine Gorky. The second section of the book, Paradoxical Circles, investigates how boredom not only became normalized in modernity, but also served to expose crises in the architecture of the 20th century. 
1930, Heidegger structured boredom to propose a new philosophy based on the interrelatedness with the world. In his view, boredom is an expression of homesickness, which urges the return to the wholeness of home. The whole is the world, and the world is home. So in modernity, being out of home is aggravated due to the Cartesian fixation with certainty, which disregards religious beliefs and elevates consciousness, turning the eye into the undisputed foundation of philosophical questioning. So to incorporate the questioner, Heidegger employs moods, conditions coming out of the eye as linking structures with the world. Therefore, boredom is one of those linking structures with the world, with the environment, with architecture. So to delve deeper into this period, this section revises uh, why Albert Camus called Oran the capital of boredom. How Siegfried Gideon reached the conclusion that modern architecture was undergoing a moment of confusion and boredom. And what qualities makes Los Angeles an ideal city to see through the lens of boredom. And finally, the third section, Extended Thresholds, focuses on boredom as a requirement for creativity. As the postmodern search for variety and difference in the late 20 and early 21st centuries. In 2005, Andrew Benjamin interpreted the convolute D, Boredom Eternal Return, of the Arcades project by Walter Benjamin, confirming boredom as an inherent component of modernity, inseparable from the interesting. Boredom is an action with unpredictable outcomes, providing a structure of awaiting rather than predicting what we're waiting for. So the passing through this space of in-betweenness allows forming, evolving, and becoming, not only omitting utopias and preconceived representations of the future, but also elevating boredom as the desire to experiment. As the moment after negative stimulation, but before the positive acknowledgement of the need to explore to design. So to investigate this relationship between boredom and creativity, this section uh, revises an article on boredom published by Domus magazine in 1981. Also the affirmations by Russell Kirk, a conservative political commentator, on why social boredom is the result of poorly executed architecture. This section also uh, compares and contrasts uh, the views on boredom by Charles Jenks and Rem Koolhaas, focusing on the idea on the generic. And finally, uh, how, according to Jorge Silvetti and Sylvia Levin, boredom is symptomatic of the architecture of the last 30 years.
That was perfect. Thank you. That I think that that was a great kind of overview of the entire book. And so there's a couple of points you brought up. I'd love to focus in a little bit. Towards the end, you actually mentioned uh, Silvetti and how, uh, and that one question I have for you then is, you know, he lays out these four peer, I guess we'll call them periods of architecture, uh, programmatism, thematization, blobs, and literalism. I think a lot of architecture students are very familiar with kind of the term of blobs, you know, organic uh, architecture or architecture with no context. But I guess the question, uh, the, the one I was curious about was the one he proposes afterwards, the literalism. I was wondering if you could walk us through that a little bit further. Um, when I talked to Jorge Silvetti about uh, his views, which were compiled in, a, in an article titled The Muses Are Not Amused, he was quite a uh, sort of reluctant to accept uh, my interpretation of his interpretation as a condition of boredom. Uh, he was explaining me that he that that was his reaction at that very specific moment in history. Uh, this was uh, a lecture uh, that was delivered in. 2001, if I'm not uh, wrong. And he was trying to see what was happening or what had happened in the last decade, in the last decade of the 20th century. And his conclusion after diagnosing those, those four trends was that these parallel trends were not successful because were not culturally relatable to architecture. In a way, he was saying that these four trends, all of them, uh, were simply derived from an abstract condition, an abstract space that was not connected to everyday life and to the understanding of boredom as a condition of communication, as a condition that defines how we live. And literalism, which uh, I thought it was perhaps the less well-defined of those four categories, uh, kind of affirms that is is simply this notion of taking a theme and applying directly to architecture, as if it would be a kind of, of touristic brochure saying X place is X quality, we take that X quality and we try to create a form that represents that quality. It's kind of a marketing strategy in which we simply uh, eliminate the distance between the user and the place. We kind of facilitate that interpretation and we simply say to the user, this is what you're going to encounter. So we don't give the user the opportunity for further reflection. And because that distance is so short, that is why, according to Silvetti, it was irrelevant and it became quickly outdated. Interesting. And so kind of circling back to another architect you brought up, uh, of course, there's a lot of philosophers and architects in here and sadly we won't be able to get to them all. 
But you had mentioned Charles Jenks. Uh, you know, I, I think a lot of students are familiar. I know I personally have read everything he's had. And so I think a concept that I kind of want to ask you about is, you know, he brings up, you bring up his, uh, I, I'm going to mispronounce this, the Ivan Illich law of diminishing architecture. You know, simply put the idea that as buildings increase, you know, every half a million square feet or every 10 stories or a few million, they become more uninspired. I guess the question I have for you is, you know, do you agree with that? Have you seen things change since he's written that? I think he wrote that a few decades ago. Well, you know, what are your thoughts on his opinion there? Um, I don't think that boredom, any kind of boredom, not just in architecture, can be quantified. I do not think that boredom is is a condition that can be quantified. And if you look at different uh, studies on boredom, like psychological and, and from even neuroscience, the conclusion is that is that all those sort of attempts to make it something stable kind of fail. And also that makes quite a lot of sense with what Heidegger says. Heidegger says that the moment that we draw attention to boredom, boredom becomes interesting and boredom is no longer boring. So we lose <laughs> track of what we're doing. You know, is we, we, we change tracks and therefore we cannot fully understand it. Heidegger says the only thing you, that you can do is just try to become awake to its presence. But anyway, but in the case of Jenks, I think that he was reacting to the environment of the late 1960s and early 1970s. And when I talked to him, because I had the opportunity to, to, to meet him, uh, he was very uh, adamant in stressing that, that the Ivan Illich law of diminishing architecture was a historical reaction to the sort of architecture that to him represented repetition, represented meaninglessness, and that was no longer a relevant contribution to everyday life. So I think that we have to understand that in, 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 in terms of that historical period. But also, we have to see that Jenks, even, even in boredom, is a visionary. Because in the late 1960s, early 1970s, there were no boredom studies. Boredom begins to be uh, a subject of study around 1980, 1981. So he was even ahead of that trying to say, here there is something, the, is something that is related to architecture, something that involves our sensibility that can be called boredom. And so uh, before I get to my final question for you, and again, like I said, there's so much you have to kind of, I think one thing that was very interesting to me is you bring up the kind of this, this relationship between boredom and interest. And you even make the point that sometimes people, when they use something as interesting or they use the word interest, they actually mean quite the opposite. I know for me that's interesting because sometimes when I don't know how to segue into my next question, I might actually say interesting. And I, I, don't, I hope I didn't do it this interview, but the, the question I have for you then is, do you feel that uh, that relationship is simply a verbal thing or that can be translated elsewhere? Um, 
It is something that I still would say uh, don't have a concrete answer. I think that perhaps we're too, too close in history to make a, a, a full diagnosis. But uh, I remember when I did my first presentation at, at a, uh, during my first year of, of, of my PhD, uh, my supervisor then, who was Ian Borden, said that in the previous meeting, he had counted the number of times people had mentioned the word interesting. And he, I, I remember the name. It was 74 in half an hour. <laughs> so, so, so this interesting, as you very <laughs> rightly say, becomes the sort of interjection that can mean anything. That can mean, yes, I'm interested. I'm truly in, interested and I want to engage with you. But it also means, oh, it's, uh, you know, a polite way of saying, oh, I really don't want to elaborate or I really don't find your work worthy of my intellectual thought. And, and, and I think that it's, it's, it's perhaps a linguistic turn that denotes something uh, similar to boredom, but perhaps, and I think that is, that is what you're trying to to hint at, it is also a, a kind of beginning to point to perhaps a new sensibility. So, boredom is linked is, is deeply connected to the modern era, to modernity, and since you know there are there are many discussions about perhaps we're going through the end of modernity or the beginning of the end of modernity. So perhaps this interesting is also a sign of a new period, of a new sensibility, which is still very early to say what is that new period, because we're still caught in certain aspects and structures of the modern era, mainly capitalism. But perhaps it's a very, very early sign of something that is moving along and creating new conditions. So I don't know, perhaps it's too early to to say, and perhaps we will have to wait some 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 few more decades to look back at this moment and see what happened with this interesting relation between boredom and the interesting. Very that's a very unique uh, point of view on that. And so the question the final question I have, like I said, unfortunately we won't be able to cover everything was, you know, since the book has been published, you know, have, have, what have you then? What have you worked on since? Have you followed a similar theme? Have you been looking into other projects? Um, boredom is proving to be a very fertile theme, and also uh, e- some other publications and boredom and architecture have been recently published. And I'm still discovering new aspects of boredom and aspects that I would like to keep on exploring. So I'm still working on boredom. I'm also interested in collaborating in more interdisciplinary efforts, such as those led by the International Society of Boredom Studies. 
But my contribution is always from the perspective of architecture, an architecture understood in a very broad manner, in this mixing of a space of sentiments and thoughts and the space of the world and the space of buildings. At the same time, I have also begun to think about uh, the experience of sameness. And this is a twofold topic. On the one hand, it requires the re-examination and philosophical investigation of what is an architectural experience and how that, whatever that is, conforms a body of knowledge that is part of the production of the built environment that informs how we construct it, even how we teach it. And on the other hand, this new project also demands the historical contextualization of sameness, of its aims. The repetition of motifs and patterns is a constant feature in the history of architecture, but its use in the modern era seems different, uh, deeply related to capitalism and consumer culture. So these two themes, experience and sameness, have not been put together yet. And that interrelation perhaps will be the theme of my second monograph. That sounds very interesting. And I, I do mean that literally. I don't mean that as a filler. Perhaps we could talk about that at a future time. I would love to. So I want to thank you again for being on the show and talking with me today. Thank you, Brian. Uh, uh, I hope that this conversation, uh, uh, I don't know, sparks further discussions on moods, architecture, and experience. Absolutely. And for all our listeners, the book is Boredom, Architecture, and Spatial Experience. I want to thank everyone for listening. Thank you and have a great day.